Hello, this is Leslie Garfa Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with three stellar legal writing professors about the all important appellate brief. Today we have a wonderful, wonderful presentation for those of you who are writing your appellate advocacy brief and about to enter into appellate advocacy arguments. I have three legal writing superstars who are here today to share some tips for making sure you have the best brief possible. I am joined by returning guest Christine Coughlin, professor of legal writing at Wake Forest Law School, Jean Mangan, legal writing instructor at the University of Georgia School of Law, and Ruth Robbins, the distinguished clinical professor of law at Rutgers Law School. It's a great conversation, one I urge you to listen to, particularly if you're writing that stressful appellate brief, or even if you're getting ready for your first or second moot court competition. We've got some superstars here today, and I know you'll enjoy the conversation. If you're listening to this, chances are you'll be taking the bar. Kaplan Test Prep prepares you well for the bar exam. You can save $100 on their test prep program by going to Kaplan Test Prep and putting in the code LESLIE100. And here's my discussion with Professors Mangan, Coughlin, and Robbins. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited because today I have three experts in persuasive writing. One, an old friend who we've heard from before, and two others. And today we're going to talk about persuasive writing. Many of you are in the throes of writing your appellate advocacy opinion. Some of you are 2Ls and maybe working on moot court. And it's really important to have an understanding of how persuasive writing is different from um, memo writing, objective writing. And here to give us some tips and pointers are my three guests. I'm going to let each of you introduce yourself first. Um, Chris, we'll start with you. Hi, I'm Chris Coughlin from Wake Forest School of Law. And Jean? I am Jean Mangan from University of Georgia School of Law. And Ruth Ann? Hi, I'm Ruth Ann Robbins from Rutgers Law School which is in the great state of New Jersey, my hometown. Um, so now you know everyone's voice. So when we talk, you'll each have an idea. So let me begin with you, with Anne. What do you think the biggest issue is with students who have to make the switch from objective writing to persuasive writing? So I think the hardest thing is for students is remembering that they're advocating on behalf of a client towards an outcome. And so it's no longer about prediction, but it's about advocacy. And it's no longer explaining the law, it's using the law to push towards an outcome for your client. And how do you do that? So um, I talk about persuasion pressure points um, in a document and how you use them um, to really drive the persuasion. So an example of a persuasion pressure point are the headings, which now need to be client focused. And so it's not something that's just like the law is, but it's, you know, the outcome should be based on. And the other persuasion pressure point I really emphasize is um, persuasive rule statements. So it's not just, you know, saying a bare statement about the law, but you're, you're explaining the law always from your client's perspective. So if you're arguing, for example, for summary judgment, it's not, you know, summary judgment will be denied when, but it's always summary judgment will be granted when. So you want to be positive. Jean, you're shaking yeah. your head. What do you say to that? <laughs> no, I, I really like that. And I like what Ruthann is saying. I was just thinking that one of the things I do with my students is try to emphasize to them, they need to know where they're going ahead of time 
So Ruth Ann was talking about you need to have a client outcome. And I talk with them about, okay, in order to get there, you need to plan ahead. My goal is to get to this star. Mm -hmm. How am I getting there? And then that way, as they go through, what is the standard overview for summary judgment? What do we need to consider? Each step along the way, then how do you shape it persuasively? But you have to know what your outcome is and you have to understand why you want that outcome and how you can get there before you can really start putting things on paper. And so there's still a lot of strategy and a lot of pre-writing that has to go in just as much as learning how to turn on the charm and say, fine for my client. And the pre-writing, like you can't emphasize enough how much thinking counts toward your final goal, right? Like I think too many of us or too many of our students think that they have to be writing, have to be writing. I talk a little bit about pre-writing again. Okay. Um, so I will say I have read Laura Graham's book, Pre-Writing Handbook. I think she's at Wake Forest too, Chris. Yes, she is. Yep. And, um, and she just does a really good job laying out how to take steps. And then, so she's got 10 chapters and I think it's not until the seventh or eighth chapter that she has people actually getting to putting pen to paper. And I like that she says, okay, start with getting to know like, what is the assignment and talks about, and I've done this with both first years and upper level students break down what are you being asked to do and then making charts, making timelines, and then understanding a lot of your pre-writing process Mm -hmm. may not be immediately taken into, um, into the final product, but it helps you get there. Got it. And, and getting there, Chris, so here's the thing about getting there. I mean, students know that they have to win, right? But I feel like they discount the other side when they become so focused. How do you make sure students look at the other side and turn that into helping them win. So um, there's different ways to do that. Um, I do think that the pre-writing skills that we already talked about are really essential to making sure that they do that. For example, if you are charting, you need to chart the arguments factually and legally why your client wins and the arguments on the other side. And then as Ruthann said, you make the argument from your client's perspective and then minimize the opposing party's argument. Um, But you can only do that if you really thought through everything. And that's where the pre-writing steps come in. Mm -hmm. So important. So this podcast came about from a Twitter conversation that the four of us had, which is really fun and cool. So Chris, I'm going to throw it to you. What's something you want to ask Jean and Ruthann? Well, um, I would love to ask, I'm going to go with Ruthann first because I would love to ask her more about document design. I'm a a big fan of uh, her writings in that area and then also in storytelling. So I'd love to hear how does document design in your mind help the students write a better brief? So um, if people don't want to look at your document, they're not going to read your document and they won't be persuaded by your document. so the, the biggest thing I would say about document design is that we don't read all caps. And a lot of people put headings or questions presented in all caps and we won't read them. So um, I teach my students that it's all about boldface and it's about keeping those headings close to the text they modify. So it's not like a heading and then a lot of space in the text. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because again, the headings are like, I think the prime real estate of persuasion in our documents. I love that. The headings are the prime real estate. That's awesome. Yeah, they really are. Right. And so you want to make them readable and you also make, want to make them lead right into the text. They don't have to be that long if the next sentence of your section is very close to the heading and flows directly from it. But you do want like boldface, not all caps. You want to brand your document. So I teach them to put like the Rutgers logo on or, you know, their own law firm, quote unquote law firm logo. Um, But it's also, you know, double spacing is not as readable as something that's like between one and 1.2 spacing. Certain typefaces are going to be easier. I mean, we all have to live by court rules, but if you don't have a court rule, you get to design it. And I actually, for my students, even if they're writing appellate briefs, I tell them that the one rule they don't have to follow is the court rule on formatting and they should design it the way they would design it if they could write the document however they want to, to teach them something about what persuasive document design looks like. That's so interesting. What's your favorite font? For what purpose? <laughs> For a brief. Um, you know, students, if they, students love Garamond. It's just so professional. Look That's into my that. favorite font. So, <laughs> I like it too. <laughs> it is. So, um, so, you know, Derek Kiernan Johnson writes all about like, are you branding yourself or are the client? Because if you're, you know, he'll give an example of, look, if you're quoting testimony from a child client, should you put it in a childlike font to really get across the fact that this was a child speaking? And so he wonders like, whose brand is it? Is it the lawyer's brand, the law firm's brand, which just has a certain ethos or is it the client and the tone you want for that client. But will the courts allow you to do that? Trial courts often don't have rules. Appellate courts have rules. And, you know, we're so focused on brief writing, but what about contracts or pleadings or letters or, you know, any of the other documents that lawyers are? Interesting. All right, so Ruthann, I'm going to turn the table on you and ask you to ask a question of Jean. So, um, What's your favorite thing to teach students that they don't know and have that aha moment? Well, full disclosure, I have been teaching legal writing full-time since August, so I don't have a huge breadth of experience to pull from. But something that I'm finding myself more and more really enjoying is using learning about writing as a way to teach students about metacognition Mm-hmm. about how being intentional in their approach to preparing and also then having a conversation with themselves afterwards about, okay, how did that work? Why did that work? What strategies did I use? I've enjoyed seeing that and then being able to say, look, what we're doing in this class matters for more than just me, the reader, what you give me, but also you can learn skills here that we can then take, you can take to the next class. And then ultimately, to practice. And that's something that I really like is when they finally start to understand what I'm telling them in class, when they go have their adult job as a lawyer will still be applicable. And I'm just going to add my two cents on that because there is no coincidence that the correlation between a good grade in legal writing and a good grade on traditional exams, because an exam is just legal writing without all the citations. I think it can be, and I don't know, I mean, Ruth Ann and Chris probably have other ideas on this, but I think the one thing that I've seen in my, my experience so far is that 
the organization and the structure is definitely the same, but the complication with legal writing comes, you have to pick a route and go with it. There's not bonus points for hitting every single possible rabbit hole. And so sometimes students who are really good at exam writing are good at exams, think that the skills are immediately transferable, but they forget to kind of focus on yeah. the main strongest point. Yeah, Chris, right. what do you think about that? I think that is a great point, and, and I love the way you explained it. Um, the differences I've seen, because I've taught both uh, doctrinal classes and legal writing classes, um, are exactly like you uh, stated, Jean, but also uh, for legal writing, it requires a lot more um, advanced preparation. And that's not to say that exams don't, but you go in there and you just write down everything um, so that you can show the professor that you what you have learned in the subject versus legal writing, you're trying to either advocate for a position for your client or um, predict an outcome. And so it's, you know, it's, it's very different. So I do see some people who excel in legal writing and um, have a more difficult time with exams uh, just because uh, they don't have all that time to think through things. That's interesting. So it's, it's interesting. So I'm, you know, kind of taking more doctrinal classes. And so I respect your viewpoints and I guess I'll retreat from mine. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I, I think there is a very high correlation. I just don't think that it's 100%. Yeah. No, I think that's true too. Um, but I do get frustrated because as a former legal writing professor too, that students discount, although I think they like appellate writing better than the memo writing. I don't know what you guys think about that. Some, some of them do and some of them don't. I mean, some students really like transitioning I found and some students are, have a really hard time taking that position and feel uncomfortable and, and sort of prefer memo writing because you, you get to deal with uncertainty a little bit. You know, you have an easier time with the uncertainty in memo writing because you can take that neutral position. And in advocacy, you have to say, yes, there's uncertainty, but this is the better way to go. Right. Right, and the students do, there are some students who really like the structure of the objective memo. And, you know, they just, they feel like they're able to equally weigh opposing arguments, which is really compelling to them. And mm -hmm. sometimes students struggle with the idea that they may get the answer wrong. And so in advocacy, you have to pick the position. It's a client outcome, but the strategy, the, the path you take to get there is up to the student to make a decision. And I have some students that struggle with the ability to say, but what if I don't get it right? Like, it's, it's geometry. Show your work. It's a proof. I want to see how you get there as much as I want to see that you got there. Exactly. Exactly. That's a good way to do it. Yeah, you have to show the path. I love that, the pathway. All right, so I'm getting all these great tips, but we're going to do a lightning round. So what's one bullet head point that you want your students to be thinking about when they're writing their appellate advocacy brief? I'll start with you, Chris. Uh, okay, so one point, but it has uh, multiple subpoints. I want them to think about the relationship between each part of the brief and how it can help each other. And that includes the point headings, the roadmaps, the mini roadmaps, and the connections at the end of each issue. I think if you can bring them all together, then you have a very compelling piece of writing. Perfect. Um, Jean? 
so to go off of what Chris was saying, the different parts of the brief and to tie in Ruth Ann's idea of document design, think about how paying attention on the title page, the table of contents, the table of authorities, don't give all of your attention just to the argument, make the whole document something I want to read from start to finish and paying attention to those little details. It's a heuristic, but as a reader, I think you probably paid attention to the details in the argument. So use that piece of credibility to your benefit. Brilliant. And with Anne? Um, I would say it's all about cause and effect. And so the thing you have to start with is the story, which should have a cause and effect flow, and that should flow right into the legal argument, which should be the effect of what you set up in the client's story. So, you know, one thing leads to another, and it all starts with the client's facts, and then the argument justifies the ending to the client's story the way that your client wants it to be. So I'm getting from all three of you kind of the same theme, that this is holistic, that you can't yeah. focus on one. And I'm going to add a fourth thing. No, and Jean kind of talked about this, no typos. Like, no typos. There's no reason to have a typo. And this is, I, I tell this story to my students. The night before my appellate brief was due, I had an emergency and I couldn't do anything, but I was lucky enough that I had my appellate brief due the day before, so I didn't really get in trouble. So pretend your brief is due the day before it's really due in case you have an emergency. Advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's practical. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about one last thing. I want to talk about the relationship between the appellate brief and oral arguments. Students love oral arguments, although it causes them the most amount of anxiety. How can how should they work off each other? I actually uh, advocate to my students that they should start working on their oral arguments uh, near the end of the time that they're writing the brief. And the reason why is because if they can distill their argument down into three major points or however many major points, they will realize what their focus really needs to be in the brief. So again, I think it's an integrated task, both the writing and then the oral argument. That makes sense. Jean? So I try and convince my students early on that writing, oral communication and written communication are just two different ways to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I try and have them think about from the beginning, as you're structuring your argument, how is that going to prepare you moving forward? And just not to think of them as being as separate as they are, because some of the same techniques you use when you write, you'll want to use when you're presenting. And then the other thing I do is sometimes students get so ready for presenting their side, at least for at our school, they have to then present on the other side, the oral side, oral argument on the other side. So I say, okay, start kind of coming up with an outline as you're going. What are the strongest arguments for the other side that you're really struggling with as you write? And keep those in mind for when you go to the next round on the other side for the oral argument. So it's interesting, and we'll get to you with that in a second. You kind of have two different approaches. I think what Christine is saying is just relax and don't stress about it till you're kind of done writing the brief. And what you're saying is keep it in the back of your mind the whole time you're writing the brief, which as I'm saying them, I say these maybe are, can be married together. I, I think we're, we're not as far apart as we may seem. I agree with Jean that you need to be having it in the back of your mind I was thinking of the, the actually, you know, taking pen to paper or, you know, thinking of your concrete argument. Yeah. And one of the reasons I have some of my students wait is because of my personal experience, which I relate to them every year. 
And that is when I was in law school, I went down to withdraw from school because of the oral argument. I had gotten <laughs> so overwhelmed and I was thinking this is the cruelest thing that anyone has ever conceived that they are going to sit there and make me answer questions about what I don't know in a formal situation. And then someone talked me into going and I had so much fun. It's the most fun and it's the fastest five minutes. And yeah. I tell, so I'm going to tell you one story and, and Ruth will get to you. I always told my students two things. One is that the students know, I mean, you know more than the judges. You always know more than the judges. That's true. And the other thing I say to my students is if you need a moment, just ask them to repeat the question, which is a good tool, but one you should only use once in a while. So I had a student a couple you know, years ago and every question he said, I'm sorry, could you ask me to repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> Ruth, let's get to you. What are your thoughts about appellate advocacy? What I want the students to do is understand the connection. It's just like Jean said, and I'm also cognizant um, of exactly what Chris is worried about. And I'll ask people like, you know, is there anybody here who has a real fear of this? And let's get you past it. Um, I'm really lucky at Rutgers that we have a very strong teaching assistant program. And so there are years when I have the oral arguments before the brief is due. And if it's not one of those years, um, then the teaching assistants are having practice rounds with the students, again, before the brief is due, so that they understand the connection because they're talking the brief out beforehand. So they'll see, like, how do I prepare for oral arguments is related to how I'm writing the brief. Um, you know, my students in the last two years talked me into having the briefs due before spring break and oral arguments afterwards, which is not the way I prefer to do it. And I pretty sure I'm going to be going back to my old system of um, the briefs are due after oral arguments. I just think it's better learning for them and I don't really need to mimic the real world in their first year of law school. There's plenty of time for that. That's, I'm going to suggest that because you really understand it after you argue it. Yeah. And at, at schools like Jean's, you really understand it when you have to understand the other side. Um, okay, last thoughts. Chris, anything else you want to add? Um, I, I would like to kind of reemphasize what Ruth Ann said before about the importance of narrative and storytelling. I do think it is essential for the students to understand and communicate to the reader their client's story in a way that makes their client likable, in a way that makes the court want to rule in their client's favor. Great. Jean? Mine's broader. It's going to be if you feel confused or like you're not sure where you want to go, your legal writing professor wants to talk to you and would like to help you with your individual problem. That's something I really enjoy. And I think a lot of other people who teach writing do too. So don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's true. I tell my students, we don't get paid all this money just to be in front of a classroom for an hour and a half. So <laughs> Ruth Ann. Um, so I want to come back to something that Jean said earlier about, um, the metacognition is that I'll suggest to my students, they actually annotate what they're writing about and saying, like, what was I trying to do here? And in that way, really stop and think about, you know, have I been persuasive? And I think having to think and talk about your own writing really helps you. Perfect. All right. I want to thank all three of you. I know this is going to make a difference in students' lives. Thank you so much. Um, and I, when I, I know it's going to make a difference in students' lives because Writing that brief, as Chris pointed out, is like the single most stressful experience of 1L in my mind. Um, so thank you all for joining me. And um, I look forward to speaking with all of you again. Thank you.
Thank you. So that's my discussion with professors Christine Coughlin, Jean Mangan, and Ruth Ann Robbins. The books they reference will be available in our liner notes. Good luck to all of you who are working on your appellate brief. I know that today's discussion will make a difference. A reminder and a request before we go. The reminder, you can save $100 off Kaplan Test Prep. Just go to kaplantestprep.com and type in the code LESLIE100. And once again, our request, if you could like us on our social media platforms, Instagram or Twitter, we're at Lord of Fact, and also subscribe on any of the platforms on which you listen to us. We would really, really appreciate it. It's what keeps us going. That's our episode for this week. Have a good day.